drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Welcome to the drawing room, a space for intimate and surprising conversations. I'm Andy Park. We tend to think of Australia as a trustworthy country, don't we? Largely free from corruption and dirty money, at least in the global context. But are we right in that assumption? And if so, why has Australia been pointed to as one of the top targets in the world to launder money through real estate? And why have several major institutions in Australia been linked to money laundering? Nathan Lynch is an expert on financial crime and the author of a new book, The Lucky Laundry. He's my guest tonight here in the drawing room. Welcome to you, Nathan. Come on in, take a seat. Thank you for having me. It's a very plush, comfy chair. It's a privilege to be here. <laughs> These wingbacks have seen a lot of uh, very, uh, very smart and intelligent people, of which you are one. Let's talk about laundering money. What does it mean to launder money? Uh, it's a very basic question, but I think it's good to establish a baseline here. It is good to yeah to go back to that because the the concept comes from the you know very early days that supposedly dates back to Al Capone who allegedly uh, cleaned his money his criminal funds through laundromats. Actually, that's not true. That's a that's a mythology that we can bust here. But the name money laundering comes from basically the phenomenon that criminal groups can amass huge sums of money, but unless they can legitimise it, they can't really enjoy the fruits of it. So for all of these profit-motivated crimes, you need to have a mechanism to place that money in the system, to conceal it, to layer it, to move it around, to skip across borders and then have it pop out the other side squeaky clean and shining as though it's been through a spin cycle. It's kind of like you need need basically a plausible alibi, don't you? Like a reason, a legitimate reason why you would have come into that money. 100%. You need, you know, there's pretty strong laws now around the uh, proceeds of crime. And so that reverses the onus of proof onto the person who's accumulated money to be able to say, where did this money come from? You should have a legitimate reason for it. And if it's not legitimate or it looks sus, then police can seize that under some pretty powerful laws, in addition, of course, to the the criminal activity of money laundering. So people who are involved in that sector, you know, they need some pretty sophisticated methodologies to get this money cleaned and get it out the other side in a usable form. But also they're involved in a hidden world of this cat and rat game of financial intelligence where they're being stalked by some pretty sophisticated people on the side of uh, government or good, as you might say. So, you know, there's a there's a pretty interesting dynamic going on, but there's a lot of pressure on criminal groups to look after the money that they've gained to the point where some of them or a lot of them or most of them regard their money as more valuable than their criminal product. As the joke in Australia goes, we don't have an economy. We have a housing market with an economy attached. And you wrote in your book that in 2017, Transparency International singled out Australia as the top country in the world for laundering money through real estate. So why is the Australian property market so desirable for these kinds of nefarious actors? That is a horrifying statistic, really, or a comment from Transparency International, but unfortunately, uh, it's pretty accurate. Now, the reason for that uh, is effectively, there's a a myriad factors there, but 
the dominant one is that the entire world has moved in lockstep to try and close these vulnerabilities. And that happens through a Paris-based agency called the Financial Action Task Force, which sits within the OECD. So it's really high level, really tapped in, and it's linked with national security concerns and things like that. So what you have is the entire planet, in effect, or the major economies, all agreeing to close loopholes down in lockstep because the money will always just divert off to the path of least resistance. So hence the the need for all economies to move together. Now, Australia has made that commitment 15, 16 years ago. And every year and every change of government, it renews that commitment to the international community, but we've failed to act. We've failed to pass these promised laws, which are, you know, they're known as tranche two of the Anti-Money Laundering Act. Now, what that has done is it's meant that you can bring your dirty money to Australia, you can move it into property, you can get legal advice, you can get accounting advice, you can get real estate agents, and you, no one in that chain of the transaction will have to have any expertise or form any suspicion around what you're up to. So as you can imagine, you've got a clean market. Money launderers want to get to a clean market because it's, you know, it looks squeaky clean. And Australia has that reputation. But unfortunately, we are down the bottom of the international list, along with Haiti and Madagascar as one of the biggest recalcitrants in terms of closing these loopholes. Wow, that is fascinating. So so break it down for me. Let's say there's a drug cartel, uh, maybe they're a South American drug cartel, there's a whole bunch of dirty, ill-gotten gains there, and then on the other side of the Pacific you have, I don't know, a new housing development on the Gold Coast. What? How, how are those steps closed? To, I mean, how, how do you close that loop in terms of the path of dirty money? Mm, Yeah, that's a really good question because it's sort of a symbiotic relationship. So we've got a hugely, you know, hugely expensive illicit drug market in Australia due to our hard borders and our success, ironically, at at tackling the importation of drugs. So if a a criminal group gets drugs into Australia, um, and bearing in mind that's a $400 billion a year global market for illicit drugs, so you're talking huge amounts of money get it into Australia, you then have what people in this game call a cash flow problem. Too much cash, not enough flow. You've got to get that money out of Australia and away from the scene of the crime. But then what you also have running parallel to that is this beautiful loophole in housing. And then you marry that up in a lot of cases with people in countries like China and Vietnam, for instance, who want to desperately hold clean, safe assets in a rule of law jurisdiction like Australia. And what these money laundering groups tend to do is they'll marry those people up. It's almost like a financial crime dating service. So the drug cartel wants its money out of Australia. The people in foreign countries want their money in Australia. And they will marry up those transactions in a process known sometimes as Hawala, or they will move it through legitimate banks because there aren't these checks in the sectors we mentioned. And effectively, you have the criminal gang getting out of Australia and they'll get the money overseas and the foreign person gets a house in Australia, which we all talk about these cash buyers coming in to buy houses. More often than not, they're not cash buyers, but they are the recipients of this dirty money and then they have a corresponding loan with a triad or a loan shark in their own country. So the criminal economy is so sophisticated. Uh, it's it's an amazing, you know, ver- very intelligent, judicious group of people that work in this field and marry these transactions up. 
But unfortunately, Australia is a target for those reasons. We're not the only country listed. I think the UK, the US and Canada, they're all targets as well. But as a, I don't know, best practice or comparing notes on how other jurisdictions can handle these issues around money laundering and real estate, what are they, what are those countries doing that um, that we're not really? Well, we've we've got an incredible, I should point out, we've got a really incredible financial intelligence unit in the form of Austrac. And in, in the Lucky Laundry, I talk about that and I celebrate the success of that agency because, you know, all too often we don't celebrate when our government agencies are doing a really good job. So we have a really great agency there in Austrac and it has partners all over the world that work together on these transnational issues. But the difference in the countries you mentioned is that they've extended their regime, their laws and their powers that they give to their intelligence unit to these other sectors. So Ostrak goes into that battle as a prize fighter, but he's got one arm tied behind his back and he's coming up against the Mike Tyson of financial crime. So unfortunately, that's the difference. That is the key difference, that we haven't had the political will to pass these laws because, as you said earlier, you know, there's this sacred cow of the Australian property market and politically everyone's too scared to, to do what's needed. Of course, it's not just the Australian real estate market. In recent years, our banks and casinos have also been linked to laundering. But this is certainly not an intentional involvement. It's an exploitative type arrangement, isn't it? It's exploitative, but as all of the reviews, uh, you know, whether it's the litigation against Commonwealth Bank or Westpac or now Crown or the inquiries into Star, what these cases always tend to throw up is a breakdown in governance systems and controls, some blind eyes, and inadvertent failures sort of compound and become systemic problems. So all organisations will have these, these issues and these failures, but it's what they do when they discover them. And what we do know is that the system's working because the country's two biggest banks have been fined collectively $2 billion, by far the biggest penalty for any corporate offence ever in Australian history. So those penalties are working and the organisations have vastly changed their culture and they're doing a really good job now in taking this issue very seriously. We're now seeing the clean-up across the casino sector. So this is evidence that the regime works um, when we give Austrac and its partner agencies like the AFP uh, the right powers that, that they need to do their job. Unfortunately, we're not seeing any of these big cases in the legal accounting and real estate professions because the laws simply don't exist there. For people like you, Nathan, who like to sort of shine a light into the darkness and try and follow the money, as it were, how important was the 2017 Royal Commission into banking and the financial sector into, I don't know, into satisfying your curiosity about what you've long assumed was happening under the surface? Yeah, that's a really good one. Because the, the Royal Commission, in effect, was, you know, a conduct risk issue. So we call it in the in our profession, you know, conduct risk, meaning the banks behave badly in effect and they got fined for that uh, and they got penalised and, and the Royal Commission focused on that. But the interesting side of it, Andy, is that that didn't go into money laundering. So that inquiry looked at, you know, charging fees to dead people and these sort of governance failures. But what had happened behind the scenes was 
the lobbying power of the financial sector had, as we know, kicked that review, that inquiry back for many, many years. And it was actually Austrac that took these guys on that started the Commonwealth Bank case that, that showed the absolute horrors that were, were happening within the banking sector through, uh, you know, laundering billions of dollars for meth cartels, for instance. And when that became apparent, that was the straw that broke the camel's back that led to the Royal Commission. So we have this little agency in Austrac with 300 staff that is doing phenomenal work. And my book kind of points out that they were the trigger that led to the Royal Commission. And then they did so much good work that has really, uh, you know, driven this change in culture and this awareness. Uh, so, you know, we do, we do have a lot to celebrate. And that has in the financial sector, it's been a circuit breaker, nothing less. On ABCRN, I'm Andy Park. Uh, financial crime expert Nathan Lynch is here in the drawing room. We're talking about his book, The Lucky Laundry. And Nathan, when I say you're an expert on financial crime, what does that actually mean? What do you investigate when you're not writing books? So we work with, uh, I mean, I'm with Thomson Reuters, which is an international uh, media and legal publishing company that helps organisations to identify and protect themselves against these sorts of failures. So we will help people with discovering the kinds of typologies, putting in place the controls that they need to protect themselves. Um, But also I do a lot of voluntary work in developing countries where there's some really good agencies like the Financial Services Volunteer Corps and um, the US Department of Justice has a program as well called OPDAT, which provides capacity building to developing countries. And so we travel to these places and we help them to bring their system up to speed so that they can benefit from the kind of learnings that we've had in the West and also that there's better collaboration because obviously none of these, in a globalised economy, none of these problems exist in isolation and it has to be a partnership. So through that work, you know, it's, it's a fascinating world and it's a really good way to get an insight into how these financial crime issues cross borders and really, uh, you know, Australia is part of a partnership here internationally in trying to resolve these issues, which of course makes it so important that we are an exemplar of what it means to take this stuff seriously. You say that none of these kinds of issues happen in isolation and you've said there's these parallel uh, underworld-type systems in Vietnam or China linking up with certain uh, interests here in Australia. So how has globalisation and the digitisation of the economy globally kind of impacted laundering and, and also the police's ability to monitor this sort of activity? It's a, that's a fascinating one. I mean, it's it's a double-edged sword. Tech is always a double-edged sword. It brings so much potential and then it also carries risks, particularly when you've got rapid, uh, you know, digital disruption taking place. There's a whole lot of vulnerabilities that will open up. Now, bearing in mind that criminal groups are massively incentivized to find those vulnerabilities and exploit them before anyone else. So a good way of visualising that is that the problem that... Commonwealth Bank had with its intelligent deposit machines meant that people could walk up, grab a milk crate and a and a backpack, you know, very Australian image, sit on out the front of a bank and shovel a couple of hundred thousand dollars of dirty money into a intelligent deposit machine, which would counter, clear the funds, pull out any uh, counterfeit notes, 
And then within seconds, you could move that money for $22 overseas. So wow. digitization was, it's amazing for the customer. You know, we've now, we've now got real-time banking and this is wonderful. But of course, when that vulnerability opened up, more than $5 billion moved through that channel very quickly. So it shows you how, you know, when, it, when one of these vulnerabilities gets torn open and discovered, it will be massively exploited to huge profit by laundering groups that might be getting 5 or 10% commission on everything that they wash. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's the challenge that we face. On the other side of that coin, digital money always leaves a trail. You can't erase that digital trail. So agencies like Austrack on its intelligence arm are really adept at unravelling these Gordian knots, basically, of financial transactions and finding effectively they're finding the eye of the needle in the haystack in spotting a dirty transaction in the noise of all legitimate transactions. So, you know, the, the criminals that enter that space, we, we, I go into my book as well on the communication side. It's the same thing. Criminals will move to encrypted communications on mobile phones to get away from wiretaps on traditional landlines. But then law enforcement agencies are really, really clever at doing things like the Anom intercept to, to get visibility into that world. So it's very much, uh, you know, there's two sides of that coin and it's always a, a chess game and an intellectual, intellectual battle between, you know, the criminals and the law enforcement guys and girls. Let's talk more about China. I used to know someone who worked in hospitality in Macau in a hotel and all these uh, patrons of the hotel were coming from mainland China with several very high-value, expensive diamond-encrusted watches on their wrists. Now, this in part was because of the Chinese government limiting the outflow of Chinese currency into the world. So why why is that and what are the flow-on effects here? Because you note one of the reasons China money flows illegally into Australia is because of that restriction on cash. That's that's exactly right. And that restriction on cash outflows, which is set at 50,000 US dollars per year per uh, Chinese national, is not something that we recognise in the West. So we don't have capital controls. So therefore, it gets really murky because someone with legitimate money in mainland China will be forced into the realm of triads and shadow banks and underground banks and the, the black economy effectively to get their lawfully gained money out and into Australia. So they will be using, you know, these nefarious techniques like you mentioned. Uh, so in the case of the diamond-encrusted watches, they can cross the border, go on a holiday to Macau or Hong Kong. They can go to watch shops and they can basically buy with their cards. They can purchase watches, but they can't take money out. So they can buy very expensive watches and then, um, you know, move those over, sell them for cash, or in some cases, the watch shop will simply charge them a restocking fee, meaning they pay for the watch, then they immediately decide they don't want it, and so they get 95% of their funds in cash, which they then move to a casino, and then off they go. So it's, it's, uh, it's a murky world because the authorities in Australia then have to be looking at it and going, well, is this legitimate money that's being laundered to get around a Chinese law that we don't recognise? 
or is it criminal funds? And it just makes the whole problem that much harder to to break open. In fact, you also write in your book about the fact that Chinese bounty hunters are in Australia looking for missing Chinese wealth. What's that story? How is China hunting for missing money in our country? They've had, as we know, um, you know, Fox Hunt and Skynet initiatives like that where they've really gone after high-level kleptocrats. Uh, so people that are, you know, politically connected or in public service jobs that are pulling tiny salaries and they've amassed huge fortunes. So uh, Xi Jinping had a really big crackdown on the corruption and a push for integrity. And what China was finding was that a lot of that money was coming down to Australia. However, it was more complicated than that because what would happen is if someone left China and came down to Australia and was living here and enjoying their enormous wealth that accrued, if they were to be sent back to mainland China, that would potentially carry a death penalty. So there's issues with the extradition there because Australia won't extradite anyone to a country where there's a death penalty for that offence. So they, they felt fairly safe being in a country like Australia where extradition could take a decade. On top of that, China at that time didn't have uh, uh, the ability to convict someone in absentia on corruption charges. So the Ministry for Public Security would come to the AFP and say, can you go after this guy who um, has absconded with all of this money? And the AFP would say, well, show us the conviction. So there was this sort of stalemate there where there were these bureaucratic limits on the ability to cooperate. And so what the MPS did in China uh, very pragmatically was said, well, let's just chase this money ourselves. And they would send down, uh, you know, agents, undercover people or bounty hunters who would hunt these people down and try to find their assets. And if they could repatriate those assets, those bounty hunters would get a cut of the action. So, you know, the, the idea that Australians are going about their lives and they just don't understand that, you know, this game is playing out on the streets of Australia, you, you know, using Australian real estate and housing and residential real estate as, as sort of a chip in this uh, multinational game of wealth is quite extraordinary. Well, Nathan, you've certainly opened my eyes to what's going on beneath the surface and you've made me simultaneously feel quite poor but also quite straight-laced in my uh, financial affairs, which is probably for the best. Appreciate your time tonight. It's been fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me in, Andy. Thanks. Nathan Lynch has been my guest in the drawing room and The Lucky Laundry is out now through HarperCollins. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.